Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet Dixie Gamble, author of Witch Hairs, Mirth, Miracles, Mayhem, and Music. It's the true story of Dixie's remarkable life as a Nashville music executive turned filmmaker and human rights activist. Rodney Kroll, recording artist and author of Chinaberry Sidewalks, says that Witch Hairs chronicles the soul journey of a childhood mystic, music business executive, extraterrestrial confidant, primitive culture documentarian, mental health and prison reform activist, adventurer, devoted mother, lover one of the world's finest musicians, and published author. Dixie Gamble has been there, done that. Recording artist Pam Tillis adds that Dixie Gamble has never done a damn thing small, and this memoir is no exception. Brazenly admitting to experiences way, way past the realms of the everyday, they make books about sex, drugs, and rock and roll pale a little in comparison. We start the show with Dixie sharing with us some of the interesting facts about her remarkable life. I'm a farm girl from the small town of Salisbury, North Carolina, born to an aristocratic, holistic doctor and rock quarry-raised mother, stirring me into part princess, part redneck. I have dined with Desmond Tutu, worked as Girl Friday to Paul and Linda McCartney, danced with Aboriginal tribeswomen in the outbush of Australia, breakfasted in bathrobes with Elton John, struggled as a divorced single mom to feed two boys anything but beans and rice. I became the first woman president of a corporate publishing company and the first woman to produce records in Nashville. I searched for two frantic years for my missing mentally ill son. I smoked dope with Merle Haggard, threatened to leave my husband for Dean Martin and insulted Frank Sinatra. I sat with murderers on death row in their final moments. And I had a face-to-face meeting with my friend after she left this world. Ordinary girl, 
living an extraordinary life. And if I hadn't done it, I wouldn't believe it either. That's why I wrote it all down in Witch Hairs. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, we will send you a a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word. You may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, get a special treat here. This is the song Witch Hairs that uh, accompanies the book. We'll talk more about uh, the music uh, in a moment. Uh, Let's sit back and enjoy this rendition that sort of sets the foundation for our conversation today. Author Dixie Gamble, former Nashville music executive turned filmmaker and human rights activist, is a 21st century visionary who in recent years has focused her lens on the intersection of mental illness and criminal justice. As president of Electra Asylum Music, a publishing division of Warner Brothers Records in the early 1980s, Dixie spearheaded the careers of Pam Tillis, Lewis Story, K.T. Osland, Josh Leo, as well as numerous other songwriters of that era. Before entering the field of filmmaking, Dixie Gamble had a private practice in spiritual psychology in West Hollywood. She's made a number of films with Gamble Productions, which have served as consciousness-raising training tools for law enforcement and correctional institutions. Witch Harris is the story of her life in music, madness, and much more. Them 
Dixie, welcome to the show. Landitz, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, so let's talk about the title of your book a second. We just played the song Witch Airs. We've got this introduction you did. Uh, you've written this book. Uh, the song title and the book title bear the same name, Witch Airs. Right. Talk a little bit. Talk a little bit about the title and how you came to think of these times in your life as uh, Witch Airs. Well, having Witch Airs contributes a lot to that. <laughs> Um, in the prologue of the book, I talk about um, my mom, seeing, seeing my mom for the first time after she had a stroke and walking into the hospital room and the light was shining in through the window and all I could see was her chin beard, which, of course, another word for witch hairs is the lady chin beard, which is inevitable. Um, and women have assigned wisdom to that process. And I, I ascribe to that. And I remember seeing that and applying shame to it with my mother. It's like, oh, how could nobody have bothered to shave her chin beard? And I walk over and pick up the razor and shaved her chin beard and washed her face. And I thought, yeah, She's my beautiful witch, and uh, I'm going to take care of her. So I don't know. I always thought of witch hairs as wisdom. And when it came time to actually, well, I, when I decided, I didn't decide to write a memoir. I'm a journalist, and I have about 56 volumes of journals back in front. Um, and I have two granddaughters and my son, I told my son, I said, you know, when I'm no longer on the planet, I want my granddaughters to have my journals. So I'm going to leave them to you. You make sure they have them. And he said, oh, God, mom, you better translate them first. <laughs> he said, nobody can read your writing. And so I rented a house in Crestone, Colorado, four or five years back and decided to translate my journals for my grand girls and just put a little note, these are for you. And um, I hope they help my budding witches along the way to avoid some of the potholes and rabbit holes that I fell in. And as I began translating the journals, I could feel the stories emerging. And yes, yeah, they were funny, they made me laugh and they were tragic, they made me cry. And the spiritual aspect of the book, uh, I don't, I hardly have words for that um, other than uh, enlightening, uplifting, wow. And I just started documenting all of it. Well, it's got this uh, witchy feel to it. The cover is black. It's got uh, white letters uh, with a black background. It looks like you've got some tweezers there where somebody's plucked some witch ears out. Uh, yeah, they're mine. They're, they're yours. And that's an actual shot. My son is a he's does he's a lighting director for film, 
And I said to my son, I, I really need a picture of this mirror and these witch hairs and this tweezer. And um, he said, oh, not a problem, Mom. I'll light that for you. So we went into a massive studio and <laughs> set up the lighting <laughs> and had a great photographer come in and shoot that cover shot. Well, that's great. And instead of having chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, we've got witch hair number one and witch hair number two and witch hair number three. And we're going to dive into a number of these uh, witch hairs today on the show. But there's another aspect of this, and we it, it came about in the uh, early in the show today, is uh, you've tied music uh, to your book as well, because your husband, John Jorgensen, uh, is, as you describe him in the book, a maestro. He plays lots of different instruments and he collaborated. In fact, we're going to have a separate episode that we're going to put up on our Patreon channel, listeners, um, where we're going to play five or six of those songs, and we're going to talk about how they got produced and how they tie into the story. But uh, we got one or two more we're going to play today as well as part of this. And um, I guess, Dixie, I, I just want to, you know, you've married John, who you describe in your book as somebody that sort of came to you in a in a vision and you kind of connected with him later. And now this with a book, not many authors have the chance to have a book and a CD that goes with it. Uh, tell us how that sort of came about. Were you just you and he talking about this and it kind of, yeah, let's do this CD or what? Well, um, I was a music executive in Nashville for a number of years. I've lived in Nashville since 1974 and um, revolved around in the music industry uh, from 74 until, I don't know, 90 really and uh, I know a lot of songwriters and most of them are personal friends I've worked with them uh, and their friends and I just said look I'm writing this memoir if I send you a chapter would you be interested in reading it and perhaps writing a song for it so the songs evolved out of songwriter friends reading a particular chapter for instance, well, on Goodbye Breeze, which is about my son, Garen, uh, Rodney Crowell is one of my closest friends. We're definitely soulmates, and he's known my son since he was very young and held my hand through my son's mental illness. And he and John, who also has been there for Garen as a stepfather, were maybe the only people who could have written that song. Um, and it, the songs evolved very naturally. For instance, on Billy, and I'll get into this more later, but um, Billy, she and I were shaggers together. And you're a North Carolinian, so you know you're not British, so you know that it doesn't mean that, but it means dancing, right? And so... I had sent uh, Harry Stinson the chapter on Billy and I said, I want a song that people can shag to. <laughs> and of course, Harry not being from the South goes, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose, I suppose Dixie, you can do it both ways. Uh, you know? Well, maybe. <laughs> uh, well, you, you know, the, the song you mentioned that uh, your husband and, and Rodney Crowell, collaborator on that's going to be part of the uh, patreon episode we do but since you've mentioned music it wasn't necessarily in the order we were going to cover there's the music with billy it wasn't necessarily in the order we're going to do it but let's just do it now because uh, i can come back to this other uh 
other piece I want to talk about in a second. Let's just focus on Billy because I've got a song here and we've got an insert here of you reading uh, from which here, uh, number 12, which is about Billy. But before I have you, uh, you know, read that little segment from the book and also then play the song about Billy, let's just set up briefly who Billy was and what Billy meant to you. Oh, uh, well, China Grove, North Carolina is a mill town. The Cannon brothers owned that town. They owned every house that the mill workers lived in. They owned the store and they owned the souls of those mill workers. My uncle was one of them. And Billy was, she wasn't a mill worker, but she fought for their rights. She was vocal for their rights. And the main thing I can tell you about Billy is kind of a line from the book, but no one knew if and he was a boy or if and he was a girl. And it didn't rightly matter. <laughs> yeah. And the little piece that you're going to uh, read here uh, talks about you and Billy wrestling. Um, and that's when you were younger, of course. But you also have a scene in the book where you come back uh, years later and find Billy, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more grown up, uh, dressed much like you would expect Billy to be dressed and flipping burgers and holding court and you sit down and have a conversation like time had just barely lapsed. Right. Like we had picked up the conversation from the day before. Well, let's do this. Let's hear the little reading uh, about you and Billy wrestling and, uh, and then that'll follow with the song and uh, we'll come talk a little bit more about that in just a second. Okay. The first time I saw Billy 1958, standing in the middle of the China Grove skating rink, holding court like a well-seasoned jester, I was hopelessly hooked. Bright lights reflected off a skillfully oiled, impeccably quaffed Elvis pump, head thrown back in a laugh, being drowned out by the strains of Johnny, he's a joker, he's a bird, a very funny joker, he's a dog, he's a bird dog the Everly Brothers' anthem to Billy, or it seemed that way in the moment. Cowering behind the rail as a first-time skater, I finally double-dared myself to fumble over to him at the risk of squirrels playing at his feet, pondering what to say to the gutsy, good-looking boy who had the gall to come to the skating rink in a dress. I took a deep breath. Before I could muster up the courage to escape from behind the rail, he glided over to ask me if I wanted to skate. Too tongue-tied to answer, I held out my hand, and our life dance began. A few days later, Billy and I were wrestling in our front yard when Mother came tearing out of the house, flailing a dish rag in the air. Dixie Jane Cobble, it is not nice for little girls to be wrestling with little boys. The three-name thing meant serious shit. Mama, he ain't a boy. He's a girl, I yelled from somewhere beneath Billy. Are you ready? All right, here we go. We're going to sing it now. I got to tell you about my girl.
Won't you grab my hand? My heart stretched out. This world is so big, and I want it to shine. Ooh, 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 la la la. All the way down to my na na na. Ooh, 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 la la la. Really? You are my lucky charm, hanging on your arm. All right, Dixie, you're right. That song does have a good beat to it. I mean, when I first heard it, uh, you sent me the CD and I was listening to it. And I thought, yeah, this has a this has a good beat. You could actually shag. Right. To this, right? <laughs> it has that it 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 has that, uh, you know, Carolina beach kind of feel to it a little bit, you know. And uh, so, well, you talked about in this reading, you know, young and wrestling with Billy and that kind of thing and your mother. Uh, you know, not knowing whether you know, Billy's not a boy, Billy's a girl kind of thing. And, but that takes you back to your roots and your roots are North Carolinian roots. I mean, you're, you, you're Salisbury born, right? And I'm and, Salisbury, uh, Rowan County. And you've got a little read here that we're going to do in just a second. It talks about life on the farm and growing up in Salisbury. Tell us what it was like to grow up in the South, um, you know, as a young girl in a, in Salisbury. Well, I wasn't a natural farm girl. Um, my grandfather owned the 200-acre cotton farm, and he farmed it. My grandmother was English nobility. So I have some pretty skewed, convoluted DNA. Um, I call myself part princess, part redneck. And the princess part didn't love the farm. I didn't 
love of the smells and the, I remember the slop bucket. We had a slop bucket that where all the organic food, of course, everything was organic then, right? It was, that word wasn't applicable because there were no pesticides. DDT had not quite come out yet. And I remember when it did come out, my daddy railing against DDT, screaming that it was going to kill all the bluebirds, which of course it did. But the slot bucket sat beside of the kitchen sink. And I would remember looking at that as a little girl going, oh my goodness, that is a smelly mess. But then that would go out and feed the pigs, right? That slot bucket loved the pigs especially baby pigs. And I had a, my own, well, I called her my own cow. She was our lone milk cow, but I claimed her as mine. Um, I had a horse named Kate, and I had at one point a burro named Junior. And that was farm life to me, those animals. Well, that's kind of a good uh, transition, Dixie, to, the, to this reading, because this reading starts off with you having a uh, your love of hogs and your loitering in a hog pen. So let, let, let's hear that and then we'll come back in just a second, okay? Okay. I loved nothing more than loitering by the hog pen, studying a dozen or so sucklings as they squeaked and squealed while nursing, mostly minding Mama to stay out of the pen. One day, one of the babies, a scrawny white runt with pink eyes, lost the tit and scrambled off in the wrong direction. Straight through the wire fencing, I bolted, bound for the north end of the sow, plucked up the squealing sibling, jerked a little round sister off her tit, attached my puny friend, then decided the whole family needed to learn better table manners. Greedy bullies were relocated to the south end, while the smallest of the squirming litter was efficiently reassigned to a bigger spigot. I well understood the importance of a good flowing tit. Having her fill of the hungry brood being rearranged, the massive mama slowly raised her head, glaring over her shoulder, let out a roaring snort in fair warning to stop with the nonsense. About the same time, Mama darted around the barn, wiping her hands on her flour sack apron. Oh, my lordy, Dixie Jane Cobble, don't move. That mama sow will eat you alive. Well, I couldn't move. Bony bird's feet, attached to matchstick legs, were mired knee-deep in hog wallow. A steaming brew of poop, pee, and mud rooted into slimy black holes where the pigs cool down on hot days. The look of terror tinged with rage on Mama's face as she hiked up her dress to climb into the pen, me up to my thighs and sinking fast, left a hearty gash in my memory. The sty stench of the sticky mung oozing down my legs triggered gagging which started me bawling, which then launched a full-on hissy fit, screaming to Mama, Get it off me! Get it off me! Clawing at my legs and digging at my eyes, flailing against my poor rescuer, 
doing her damnedest to hoist me out of harm's way. Fixing shit covered me in shit, and the fixer was born. All right, and Dixie, the last thing you, you said in this read here was that, uh, you know, the fixer was born. Right. Uh, wh- wh- what did you mean by that? H- how do you think of yourself as a fixer? Oh, my goodness. If, Landis, if, if you told me you had a, a sore throat right now, I would do everything I could <laughs> to you'd fix ca- that for you. <laughs> you'd, ca- you'd, ca- you'd cast a spell all the way from California, well, right? <laughs> I would be having you up your vitamin C levels to, right. you know, 3,000 a day. And, yeah, my father was a healer, as you know from the book, and I certainly got that DNA. Uh, but, you know, I'll fix about anything that needs it, which um, – makes me a good activist, actually. I've been an activist for the mentally ill and an activist for the imprisoned, um, worked with prisoners and the mentally ill most of my adult life, yeah, anti-death penalty such. So fixers are good activists. Yeah, you, as part of your resume there, you, you've done work uh, creating some films through your production company to educate uh, uh I mean, just talk briefly about that. Tell us what that was about. When my son was um, overtaken with severe mental illness, and, and that's really the word, it just grabbed his life and smothered it. Um, the shock of that. And it so happened at the same time that we actually, my husband, found my son in the bathtub at our house with a butcher knife. It was, that's how I knew. That's how I found out my son was mentally ill. And um, around that same time, Tennessee was executing uh, the first person they had executed in 42 years. The death penalty had been reactivated. Well, there are no accidents in the universe. That man was mentally ill. And the National Alliance of Mental Illness called me and said, would you represent him um, to the press? Would you be our press liaison? Because they were in Washington. And uh, as I studied the case, I realized, oh my gosh, this, this guy was more than likely innocent. So that was my immersion into activism for the mentally ill and for prisoners and for mentally ill prisoners. Now, Dixie, you, from having read your book and talk with you, you seem to take on a lot of causes. You, you get involved in a lot of activities. Um, your book suggests that you've got sort of a complicated relationship with sort of growing up in the South. And yet you came home back to Salisbury to promote your book. How do you feel about your roots and what made you want to come home to share your story? Oh, I've got chills all over me. I love my home. I love North Carolina. I love the complexities of it. I love the complexities of the South. Um, I feel it's shame based for obvious reasons. Um, I see that shame reflected today more than ever in the South. Um, When you have a history like the South has of the, what I call the enslaving or buying and selling of other human beings, it's going to make 
history is going to be complex and there's going to have to be an innate healing in some way. And I feel that personally. I mean, we had um, our neighbors were uh, African-American families who came to our farm and helped pick cotton. Uh, they came to hoe cotton at cotton hoeing time. They picked cotton at cotton picking time. They were our friends, our neighbors. There was absolutely no hint of denigration to them by my father or anybody. We loved them and we treasured them, but that wasn't the typical South. Or maybe it was um, more prevalent than I imagined it to be, but as a little girl, I remember seeing um, African-Americans treated very differently in the stores than I was and that my father was. Mm. So, and I, go ahead. No, that's fine. And what I was going to say is you, you, you went from North Carolina, you ended up in, uh, in Nashville and given some of the stories you tell in your book, it's in, in the, in the three marriages and everything that it's almost like you could write a country music song about <laughs> <laughs> your life. right? And, and, and yet, and yet you end up, in Nashville being the first woman leading a recording uh, publishing company in this male dominated environment. We've got a reading here. Uh, you know, you were hanging out with Willie and the boys, so to speak, but we got a reading here that talks about that time in Nashville. Anything you want to say to set that up? Uh, you know, it was, it was the microcosm of perfection in the country music business. I think certainly the business isn't like that anymore. It'll never be like that again. But at that point in time, I happened to be in the microcosm of a magical, magical thing in Nashville. And all of the people that were hanging out in those days, Willie, Roger Miller, Chris Christopherson, uh, Harlan Howard, Bobby Braddock, are in the Country Music Hall of Fame today. We didn't see it that way then. They were just, we were just friends hanging out smoking dope. Yeah, as will become clear shortly on this read. <laughs> so so let's, let's, let's hear you read about it. Yes, it was a butt-burning slide from the power of being the first woman given the title of president in country music to the skydive out of quasi-royal realms into a commoner once again. Nothing I could not withstand had my ego not still been wedged between unresolved personal and cultural shame. As my ex frequently reminded me, I was an incomplete circle. Day-to-day -day operation in a masculine-oriented corporate world in the late 70s to early 80s, when women were barely sanctioned to sing in Nashville, not to head companies or produce records, body slammed me into an underdeveloped, inexperienced, masculine part of myself. I suppose my immaturity mirrored my daddy's on-again, off-again success as a before-his-time natural practitioner. I had no solid male example of how to master success, yet I had leadership status in an industry cinched in kicking and screaming transformation from a good old boy network into what was soon to become a major money-making mecca. I carved my chops with the cowboy hat and shit-kicking boots at Tree Publishing Company 
worn by the likes of Willie Nelson, Hank Cochran, Harlan Howard, Bobby Braddock, and Roger Miller, all on paths to the legendary walls of the Country Music Hall of Fame. They were not incumbent country music messiahs in my mind, but friends to hang with, smoke weed, and witness the birth of their newborn poems set to music. The original guitar pulls started when Roger blew into town. He'd invite any and all of the above-mentioned writers, along with Larry Gatlin, Sonny Throckmorton, Chris Christopherson, and other scribes of that era, to his suite at the Spence Manor or his lair at the King of the Road Hotel. First call to business was the passing of a joint, and for some disappearing into the bathroom where white powder piled in quart baggies, I knew even on innocent glance was enough to send us all downtown to jail. When the collective high found perfect harmony, out came a guitar and the introduction of the latest offspring from country music master scribes. One guitar was passed to the next and the next and the next until the wicked morning sun crested across the Nashville skyline. All right, Dixie, when I read this uh, section of the book, I, I, I was almost a little jealous. You know, here you're hanging out with all these these people that we know of today as, uh, you know, very talented singers. And, uh, you know, fortunately, nobody showed up and, uh, you know, threw you all in jail or whatever. But uh, <laughs> I suppose that could have happened. But, oh, yeah. In, yeah. In addition to the celebrity singers you hung out with in Nashville, um, you know, you and your husband had kind of a, a story time as well when he was playing with Elton John's band, right? Yes, we did. And uh, it, it's an interesting story, actually. I don't even know if this is in the book. I think it is. Um, we were living in West Hollywood, and my husband was um, in a band called Desert Rose Band. He also had had a band called the Helicasters, very successful three Telecaster players. Um, and he was doing a lot of eclectic music, working on films, working on TV shows, loving his life. We were having a, a walk one afternoon, and as you know from the book, I get messages, and I looked at him, and I said, oh, you're going to be playing with a really famous rock and roll singer, and he said, no, I'm not. I'm happy with my life, just like it is. I said, sorry, you're going to be playing with a really famous rock and roll singer, and he said, how do you know, and I said, I can see you on stage. And he said, well, I hope you're wrong. And we continued our walk. Maybe two weeks later, I was visiting my mother in Salisbury. And I was on the phone with my husband. And uh, landlines then, right? So call waiting clicked in. And he said, can you hold on a minute? I've got a call. I waited and I waited and I waited. And I'm not patient. And I uh, was just getting ready to hang up, and he came back on the line, and he said, well, you'll never guess who that was. And I said, I don't care who that was. You kept me on the phone for 20 minutes. He said, well, honey, it was Elton John. He wants me to come play with him. <laughs> and, so, and so what's the first thing? <laughs> Told you. <laughs> Told you. 
And that led to like uh, six years on the road with uh, Elton John's band, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and you went on some of those trips as well? I did. To... I went on a world tour with them. It was magnificent. Yeah. It was magnificent. It, how many people get to do that? I mean, we went to Moscow. You know, we went all over Europe. Yeah, yeah it was extraordinary. Well, I think you said somewhere maybe in your opening you were in bathrobes talking with Elton John. What did you and Elton John talk about in your bathrobes? <laughs> well, he's intimidating. Um, you know, I'm a probably an average intelligent Southern girl. <laughs> he is a not of average intelligence. He's quick-witted British. Um, John and I spent some time at, at his at Woodside, his primary residence, and um, breakfast was <laughs> it was intimidating. I remember uh, we were there a few days, and then we were going to go down to Cornwall, and it's the most beautiful part of Great Britain, and we were going to tour around down there. And Elton, he's very fastidious. You know, he was packing us lunches and, you know, to take in the car on the trip to Cornwall. I mean, he's just incredible. You know, he can throw the most incredible tantrums known to man, but he's an incredible human being, and he's absolutely brilliant. And as I said, he was intimidating to me. I love him, you know, and we we love each other, but I kind of pull back, you know, in a conversation with him. And I think a lot of people do. But anyway, so we're getting ready to leave. And he says, are you sure you don't want to stay? He says, um, Gianni and the Princes of Wales are coming for dinner tonight, and you can meet them. And I said, for God's sake, Elton, you're bad enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to take on the Princess of Wales and Gianni Versace. <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take our, uh, our, our, our short break here. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about more of the uh, interesting people that uh, Dixie met. We're going to talk about her spiritual quests, uh, talk about her son, Garen. We're going to do the Rotting Life segment. We've got some more music and a final reading. So uh, please stay with us. Hey listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. 
Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Uh, all right, listeners, we're back with uh, Dixie Gamble. She's the author of Witch Hairs, Mirth, Miracles, Mayhem, and Music. And uh, we're talking about uh, some of the people she ran into when she was in the music business. And um, we left out uh, a couple that you might recognize, Paul and Linda McCarthy. You were, what, Girl Friday to them for a short period of time? Paul and Linda McCartney, yes. yeah. Yeah, um, I was. Uh, I was working at Tree Publishing Company at the time. And kind of as an assistant to the writers, which was a great position, which meant I typed lyrics for them. And uh, I got called up to the big office one day, which you never want to get called up to the big office, right? And um, Buddy Killen said, you know, uh, I've been talking to John Eastman, who's Linda's father. Let's see. John is the father. Lee is the brother. Or it may be the other way around. Anyway, she was Linda Eastman. And um, they want to come to Nashville and spend some time, uh, spend six weeks here recording with Wings. Um, and they need a Girl Friday. Would you be interested? <laughs> so how many people get asked if they're interested in hanging out with a beetle, right? <laughs> and uh, he happened to be my beetle, right? We all had our beetles in those days. John was, I mean, Paul was my beetle. So that was a quick affirmative. That's great. So you got to, you got to find out. And what kind of people were they? Did you have a good time being their girl Friday? You know, I really did. I talk about a piece in the book um, where Linda was not quite accepting of other women in the studio at first, which was a bit scary. And um, but I ended up asking her to go shopping with me. She loves to shop. And I'm not even that much of a shopper, but she was a shopper. And uh, we ended up girlfriends, actually. You know, we, we talked about husbands and children and life, things women talk about. I liked her very much. Mm, did In you fact, she, we, she sent me a Christmas card the following year that I treasure. Uh, and it's a book of her photographs called Linda's Picks for 76. And, of course, it's a collector's item today uh, with 
it was photos of Paul and Wings and some of the Wings Across America tour. That's great. Now, I didn't ever ask you about this. I'll ask you now. You said you danced with Aboriginal tribeswomen in the outbush of Australia. I did. So I don't know. Are you we, jealous? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, were you were you dancing to beach music? What were you dancing to? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what what an extraordinary experience! And I can never talk about this experience without tears. Um, I was doing a documentary film on the utopian art. Utopia is an out region of Alice Springs, Australia. Alice Springs, Australia is in the middle of the country and there's nothing around it for thousands of miles except tiny little um, native encampments or villages or whatever. And um, I took a small film crew to film how this art was procured, this Tim... Um, Jennings had been running this art gallery and he go he would take uh, his jeep deep deep into the outbush uh, outside of Utopia 12 hours into the bush and drop off paints you know acrylics and canvases and um, to these artists and two weeks later would go back and pick up the most extraordinary art you've ever seen I collected I have 35 pieces of it and um, the, the, his relationship with the artist and his reverence and caring about the art and how he would develop young artists and let them, allow them to become artists. And um, anyway, as we were filming, the ladies, they do rituals. It's called a corroboree, which is a, a ritual of song and dance. And the ladies paint their breast. And we're there, you know, uh, we ask for permission to film it, which has never been granted, ever. We were the first people ever allowed to film an authentic. And we're not talking about something the natives do for tourists, right? We're talking about the real thing. And, um, we, you know, the ladies gave us permission to film. And then Mary Morton pointed to me and she said, come on, come on, come with us. And I'm going, me? Really? Me? And, oh, Landis, it was extraordinary. I mean, they have a particular rhythm and a little chant that they do, which I joined in immediately as if I had been doing it all of my life. I could hear the music in my soul, in my cells, in my being. And I was chanting and singing along with them, sitting on a blanket covered in dog feces. I mean, the smell was, it was all I could do. I just had to put, to stay over it, <laughs> way above it to not smell it. But it, at the end, Mary kind of pulled me up to dance. And it was so white girl dancing. It was, it was so bad that they were snickering. First of all, they snickered at my very tiny breast because you need breast to paint. You need pendulous breast. They all have very pendulous breast. And I think the more pendulous, the higher you are, are up 
in the elder sphere, you know. So I think, first of all, they looked, when I took my shirt off, they looked and thought, well, what are we going to paint? <laughs> and then, you know, I when I was trying to dance with Mary, you know, I could kind of feel the other women going, you know, snickering. But at the end, Mary hugged me and she said, you were one of us. And, ah. Uh, I still, I still can't put words to that. Well, this kind of leads a little bit to your connectedness to the universe. And you do have a number of chapters in the book where you talk about your spiritual quests and meditation, um, astral travel, which I'm going to ask you about after we play this short reading uh, from Witch Hair Number 6, which talks about the goal of a spiritual quest. And let's do that, and we'll be right back. The goal of a spiritual quest is to put ourselves back together, reintegrating the self that acts and the self that observes. To be split is to be in pain. We feel our inner separation as a wound, and we try to dull our pain with frantic or self-destructive methods. We seek wholeness and will achieve it only by surrendering to the sense of a reality that lies beyond ourselves. What triggers a soul's yearning for expansion? Is it the inner longing for cosmic contact inherent in every human psyche? Is it pain? Is it spiritual deprivation, engulfing fear, or perhaps a slippery descent into such a vulnerable state that the ego simply surrenders, stepping aside to make room. For me, it was time to deal with my healthy dose of Southern shame, varnished over by fleeting affluence. Okay, Dixie, now it's the part of the show where you're going to translate for me some of what I read in your book. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that might be coming. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So so you talk about this thing called uh, astral travel, and you are very much describing a situation where you feel like through your meditation, you can actually go places. Um, Tell us, you know, how that works and what you experienced. Thank you. And thank you not only for the subject, but thank you for framing the question in that way, because it is indeed only my experience. And uh, I make it very clear, I'm sharing my very personal experiences. And whether you, re- you can relate to those experiences in any way, I have no attachment to that. So um, it was a very difficult time in my life in that it was, it was a very public divorce from my second husband. And... Uh, I just had the feeling I needed something deeper and different. And I started meditating. And for some reason, I didn't do what a lot of people do and go, oh, I'm going to try meditating five minutes a day and see how that works or 10 minutes. I jumped into it. And I was meditating two hours a day, every day. And um I started having experiences that I didn't understand and uh, 
more uh, inexplicable than anything else. But I was very clear that my soul was leaving my body. And I was that I was allowing that to happen with my breath, which I describe in the book as higher floor or elevating my energy to a less dense energy or accessing what I call upper floors. And it was very clear because that my soul was leaving my body because I would recognize places in my house. I, at one point I was in my kitchen, but I was under a very small space in the, in the lower kitchen cabinet between the floor and the cabinet. And I thought, how did I get here? So they're not visions. They're not dreams. I wasn't asleep. And once I'm a physics nut, <laughs> I love physics. I love quantum physics. And once I started studying quantum physics, I began to understand what was happening. They're different. If you access certain levels of your brain waves, you will free your soul, so to speak. Um, and that was what was happening. And then so I started, I don't think I use the word astral travel because I don't really feel that's a, I don't know, but there are no words. So who do I know? What do I know about what words are applicable to this? But at any rate, I was able to go somewhere. I'd always wanted to go out of my body. And the trick became when I would be afraid, like at one point, there's no time in that dimension, right? Time is only in our dimension. In spiritual dimensions, there's no such thing. We don't know if it's one second or a thousand years. And I realized, oh my gosh, how long have I been gone? And the minute I realized that, I was back in my body. So emotion is of the human body. And I would pop back into my body and realize. And the only way I could recall it was to actually write down every word of what I experienced at the time. That was how I found what I found in all my journals and decided to share it at the risk of being so what are you talking about? Actually, my publisher said, you're going to have to make this a little clearer to me. <laughs> and, and I said, well, what about I just started describing the upper floors. And she said, ah, oh, okay, I get that. And um, I decided at, at one point I thought, you know what? I don't know if I want to go around to bookstores and sit in front of a bunch of eye rollers. <laughs> but as it's turned out, you know, I've kind of integrated it as you're doing here in with the rest of the stories. And I've not had one eye roll, actually. So... Well, you've probably had a lot of curiosity and, and you actually, yeah. And so in which here number 18, uh, you start out, um, I despise cell phones, not for the reason I despise flies or pine trees, but because they're unhealthy and holy and unwise. And after that little bit of wisdom, you then talk about Dale 
uh, Franklin. Mm-hmm. And I think here's where some of your meditative experience comes into play too. Just, br- you know, tell us briefly about that and how that experience shaped your life. Oh, thank you. Um, well, Dale obviously was a very, very close friend and I won't, go into the outcome of this experience because I really would like to save that for the reader. Sure. Uh, I will say that Dale and I had a very unusual plan. We were both spiritual women. We were both meditators and the conversation went something like she knew six months before she died that she was going to die. And she said, wow, we have to make a plan to see if I really, if we really can meet, if I can come to you after I leave my body. We had a plan. We carried it out. All right. Well, we'll leave that for the rigors. Now, Dixie, your life has been full of ups. It's been full of downs. It's been full of laughter and happiness, and it's been filled with sadness. Um, your son, uh, who you love very much, uh, Garen, um, was going to be sort of a musician like your husband. He had talent, but then he suffered mental illness, and you had to deal with that um, difficult experience to the point that uh, y'all were trying to track him down, and maybe when you found him, they wouldn't even hold him for a day or so because he was of age. Talk about that situation. Well, my son was a prodigious musician. He played at a very, very early age, um, played professionally by the time he was 14, um, as my husband is a musical prodigy. So it was a gift. And uh, my husband, my son's father, was a singer and musician. So it was a predestined almost. I say in the book, we gave him the name Garen Gamble because it would look good in lights. <laughs> That's how sure we were of his journey. And his journey was tragically interrupted with mental illness, which at the time I had no idea that there was any genetic predisposition to in our family. But once I did the research, um, the, the genomic research, of, it was in both our families. So my son almost didn't have a chance. And not only was he musically prodigious, but intellectually prodigious too, as many mentally ill are. And at one point, uh, my son was living in a board and care and his psychiatrist we had a I had a note in my son's chart do not ever change meditation I mean sorry medication without consulting the family and a young resident psychiatric resident changed Garen's medication and he couldn't handle the switch and he disappeared into the night and it was uh, almost two years that he was missing. How's he doing now? Uh, he still, of course, has severe and persistent mental illness. But, and, you know, with COVID, it's very, very difficult because he lives at a board and care, which is similar to a disabled residence home. Um, so it's difficult 
but um, at the moment he's doing well, especially under the circumstances. Good, good. Well, let's do this, uh, Dixie. Let's talk about the writing life just a minute. You're, uh, you've written this memoir. It's, uh, it's fraught with emotional decisions that you had to make throughout your life. Uh, it's, uh, you're, you're laying yourself bare. You're not holding back. You're even putting out the things that you said might reveal some eye rolls uh, at places. So did you ever go through the, should I write this? Uh, should I put this out there? Uh, am I telling too much? Uh, did that ever go through your mind? You know, that's interesting, Landis. That's a great question because it didn't. And I think mainly because I thought I'm just going to tell what comes naturally. I didn't sit down and go, oh, I'm going to tell this and I'm going to tell this or I'm not going to tell this. I would sit down at the computer and just start writing and whatever came, came. And then when I the manuscript was turned over to the publisher, I said, take out anything you want. I'm not attached to any of it. Take, take any of it out. Well, and I are, left it up to her. You are a very unique author in that respect because a lot of authors guard their words, you know, like they're built, trying to build a fence around them. <laughs> uh, that was yeah. nice. Yeah, that was good. So, um, and the reason you decided to write your story um, was what specifically? Um, really for my grandgirls. They're, one is uh, in her 20s now and one is in her teens. And they're just brilliant, beautiful and they're going to be great witches. And I wanted them to have a roadmap. That's great. Are you glad you wrote the book? I am. I am. It's very well received. Um, we were doing some wonderful tours. And then COVID has interrupted the touring. And I've loved being in bookstores. I love independent bookstores. I love the feeling, the smell, everything about them. I love being with an audience. We got standing ovations in bookstores. We played music. It, it, it was beautiful, and I look forward to continuing it, and this has been interrupted. Um, and speaking of, one of those bookstores was, um, it's called Park Road Books or Park, it's Park, Park, Road, Road, Park Road Books? Park Road Books, yes. Park Road Books there in Charlotte. Sally, I think, is the owner's name. Um, and I was gonna, that was going to be one of my stops. So there are copies of Witch Hairs there which yeah. I'm delighted to say. Yeah, that's great. We love Park Road Books and uh, they're sponsor of the show. So that's great. Uh, now, I guess um, from a from a process standpoint, you talked about journaling, uh, that you kept all these journals and then you kind of turned them into a, a book. Uh, what do you get out of the process of journaling? Um, how, how does it, uh, and, and how did that journaling experience help you when you decided you're going to write a book? Um, what I got out of it was self self-processing or it was like self-therapy. I would write stream of consciousness and have it reflect back to me, my unconscious. It was more a capturing of the unconscious mind than the conscious mind. And what I found, at least in the way I journaled it, bypassed my ego. It was more my soul was speaking to me and um, I guess that's interesting. I'm just realizing this as I'm saying it, but I think the whole book is my soul speaking. Certainly not my ego, or I would have not been quite so vulnerable, right? 
Yeah. Well, you know, your, your, your life experience, Dixie has been, uh, you've gone in a lot of different directions. And I sometimes ask this question, um, you know, what is the fact about you as a writer that people might be surprised to learn, but you've got so many (laughs) 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 that they're not, they're not going to be surprised, right? (laughs) We cover them and you cover them in the book, but, uh, I guess I will ask this question since you've been on this journey. Um, how has this, uh, writing this book, uh, added to your personal life journey? Oh, well, you ask incredible questions. Um, for in my entire life, I was in a supportive creative role. I was supporting other people's creativity. And even as a spiritual psychologist, I was in a supportive role. And there was certainly a big part of my soul that wanted to create. Now, I have done films. I've done documentaries. I've done three documentary films. Um actually and that is me creating but it's not just me right I have camera people who are great at what they do I have uh, lighting people who are great at what they do it's not just me creating this book is just me and it it's emotional for me to say that now Mm. I put myself out there with no support or scaffolding around me. And for some reason, that was important to my soul. My soul needed that. That's great. So, Dixie, I did this in some earlier seasons, and I throw it in every now and then. It's kind of a either or or both or neither. I'm going to do some real quick questions to you. I've I've usually asked them of humans. I've never had a witch on the show. so. (laughs) We're going to find out how a witch, how a witch actually writes. So uh, here, here's your first one. Ink pen, ink pen or keyboard? Oh, keyboard. Well, initially, it, uh, a lot of the ideas or the stream of consciousness writing was in journals. But to actually write, I, yes, keyboard. Dictionary or spell check? Uh, neither. I would check the thesaurus or a uh, the thesauruses every now and then, mainly for verbs. I, I had a battle with verbs. Uh, it feels like there's not enough verbs in the universe. Does every writer feel that way? Um, it certainly wasn't enough verbs for me. Uh, so every now and then I would check and oh, there's got to be a better, better verb than that. So, so um, b- being the free spirit that you are, I think I know the answer to this one. Outline or free flow? Oh, free flow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, So when does a witch write? In the light of day or the dark of night? During the day. Okay. Okay. The witches are working during the day. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Complete quiet or some kind of uh, music or noise in the background? Complete quiet. Okay. Uh, Do you enjoy writing the first draft more or revising it? Oh, wow. Good question. Uh, I think revising it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I write very stream of consciousness um, to go back. I mean, I, I revise six and seven times. I'm, I'm not sure if that's common, or, but I revised a lot. No, I've heard authors that have had 25, 30 drafts uh, or more, so that's not unusual. Oh, yeah. Writing the work or submitting it for publication? 
Oh, writing it. <laughs> yeah. Now, 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 knowing your, you know, flair for being out there and connecting this, I think your answer might be different than most authors, but marketing or manual labor? Oh, I love Well, if marketing means going into independent booksellers, then, yeah. oh, marketing. I, yeah. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. The digital yeah. thing, not so much. Yeah, well, if you need a bunch of authors to dig ditches for you, I've got I've got a crew because a lot of them are really just don't enjoy the marketing side of it. But you've done well. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think they oh. I think they enjoy the writing part, not so much the marketing part. But uh, okay, just a couple more, and then we're gonna have a final read here. But uh, what makes you proudest, uh, Dixie, of um, the things that you've put in your book? The the way it it's being received um, maybe, I don't know, two, three, four times a week. I hear from mostly women, granted, how much the book has meant to their personal journey and inspired them and inspired them to meditate or to deepen their meditations or to accept mental illness in their family or to not be afraid to journey inside themselves to see what's in there, to see where the roadblocks are, to see where the dust resides in the corners. Um, hearing from these women is has changed my life. It's it's really changed my life. All right, we've got a final read here, and then a song that goes with it called "The Edge of Everything," and it uh, we're gonna play that uh, Dixie and then we're going to wrap things up so uh, let's do that okay what your soul knows and creates is what matters at birth we're not issued a guidebook advising and advancing our journey had I taken a peek at the plethora of extraordinary gifts the universe would bestow upon me in the form of family, friends, frenemies, mentors, colleagues, and truth stalkers, all neatly packaged in miracles and mayhem, I would have blazed into oblivion. Just as the various manifestations of these pluckings rendered the woman I am, far from uncommon beings, underwrote the materialization of this book. I share these experiences from the light, some defying credibility, and from the dark, bearing my shame quotient. The former come easily, bouncing from the pages of 56 journals preserved for 40 years. The latter were challenging to tweeze, a sore surrender. One incomplete without the other, just as the universe is not the totality of existence without the dark matter that binds it. So that's my intention with this little crop of witch hairs, to offer a lifeline to spiritual dimensions you may have experienced without recognizing the truth of their existence. Maybe you called it a dream, an illusion, or delusion. You may have a secret yearning for access to other dimensions or curiosity about what the hell is out there. In the simple act of acknowledgement, Truth prevails, and boom, we're one with our intention. Each essential life narrative, be it light witch hairs 
or dark witch hairs create synchronicity with our soul's mission to expand. It's the natural state of the universe, and it belongs to us all. And so it is. Walking on the rim of a high grass road, weight of the weary to unload, sensing every moment of something more, the scent of jasmine from a distant shore.
All right, Dixie, you've had the final word here. I just want to uh, have one more question. You seem to have checked a lot off of your bucket list of things that, uh, uh, you know, many people, no, not many people have experienced the kind of things you have. I guess the question is, other than getting back out on the road and talking about the book, and <laughs> what's next for Dixie Gamble? Uh, well, immediately, um, John is producing the book for Audible. So I'm reading the book right now, which is extraordinarily complicated and complex and takes a lot of energy, but maybe the most fun I've had in a long time. And it is filling up, you know, being sequestered. It's, it's putting some use to time, which I'm loving. Um, so that's immediate. And, you know, I'm probably like everybody, Landis, right now, I have no idea what's next uh, for the planet. For me, for humanity, for the country, I can only hope for the highest good. Yeah, and hopefully by the time this comes out uh, in the fall, um, your audiobook will be ready, and uh, maybe people can get it through Libro.fm because that's a that's a service where you can listen to uh, books on audio, and you can connect them to local bookstores and support your independent bookstore. So uh, maybe we'll be looking for that on uh, Libro. And uh, hey, Dixie, it's been really great having you on the show. Listeners, you can find out more about her and pictures and links in the show notes. But uh, Dixie, thanks for spending time and uh, sharing not only your talents uh, here in your writing, but also the music as well. Uh, Landis, thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.